If you're looking to buy or sell pre-IPO stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. Since 2009, SharesPost has transacted more than $4 billion in the top private tech companies. Proven, trustworthy, secure. Visit us at SharesPost.com. Hello, and welcome to Equity, live from the floor of TechCrunch Disrupt SF 2018. I'm TechCrunch's Connie Loises, here with our own Danny Crichton. Hi. And Crunch-based news is Alex Walhelm. Hello. And we are joined by the lovely Gary Tan, managing partner at Initialized Capital. Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So it's kind of an interesting scene here. We're near, we're nerds, we're sort of surrounded by nerds. It's a, in a really good way. This is not the first time we've had uh, equity here at Disrupt. Um, but it's the first time we've been at Moscone. And I'm enjoying the fact that there is about uh, a kajillion more square feet to play with. Like I know. This place. And air conditioning and, and board temperature bathrooms. controlled. Yes. <laughs> I know. It's so great not to be boiling or, you know, freezing. Yes. Disrupt has had a history of being awesome and also the wrong temperature. So this is <laughs> a, like a going to war. upgrade. Um, but if I can start, uh, this week had some relatively fascinating news. So Amazon became the second company, I think, kind of in the history of the United States to become worth briefly, admittedly, $1 trillion. Now, I went back and I pulled that out. Now, Apple pulled it off first on August 2nd. So just over a month later, our second company crossed the trillion dollar mark. So, What's our take? Yeah, well, what, what I was going to say, so with Apple, I mean, I don't remember why it crossed a trillion when it did. Maybe it was in anticipation of, you know, its sort of fall releases. With Amazon, I have no idea. What happened this week? Was there something released that I missed? I think at the end of the day, to me, it's really software eating the world, but uh, we all thought startups were going to do that, but actually these are startups. They just happened to be startups a long time ago, and now they're mega tech, and so I, they're eating the world. It's just the mega tech ones are doing it. At what point, though, do you have to drop the startup moniker? Because all companies were at some point, like a couple people had an idea. I think that was for Amazon back in like 94, so kind of back in the past. <laughs> it's been a while. It's well, been a you long know, time. to your point. Okay, so and this this uh, story has been sort of discussed ad nauseum on stage at Disrupt this week. But there was an Economist piece that talked about big tech and and whether Silicon Valley had peaked. And its point was, uh, it's becoming harder for startups to compete because of companies like Amazon and Facebook and Alphabet that are absorbing all the talent, paying them lots of money. So I, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's a, a leap, but I wonder if it was somehow in reaction to you know just you know, growing awareness that these companies are just getting bigger and bigger thanks to their network effects. I mean, I, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, it's interesting, though, that Amazon and Microsoft are not in Silicon Valley, right? So two of the four um, are in Seattle, of all right. places, which is also facing its own sort of, you know, expense and, and richness problems, um, both from a housing perspective, from a salary perspective, the inflation around those. And so I think um, when you look at peak Silicon Valley, I think the big questions are, one, you know, are students coming out of college still coming here to start their careers? Are they still going to come to Google and Facebook? And I think the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. The Absolutely. talent is still flowing in. The question then is, are people going to flow out? Um, yes. <laughs> Alex, do you have any opinions Alex on flowing out of Silicon Valley? I have a lot of opinions about this because six or seven years ago, I forget how old I am, I graduated college and moved to Silicon Valley and I was very excited about it. And now I'm slowly moving away. I've got one foot on the other coast and I'm kind of loving it because I can now live part-time in a place that isn't overcrowded, is moderately affordable, home ownership isn't a pipe dream. Um, and so honestly, back to your point about, you know, are kids still coming here? Unless you're at Stanford or Berkeley, I wouldn't really recommend coming to the Valley right now. I would just wait for the inevitable downturn, then come. It's well, two I mean, years away. Sorry, Gary. Oh, sorry. I mean, part of it is like you are actually bringing that culture to where you went. And so that's going to 
happen more and more. People come here, they absorb Silicon Valley, they absorb exactly what's going on in this room, and they're going to take that and make tech hubs everywhere else in the world. It's, we saw that for years at Y Combinator, and I think that that's going to happen broadly across all of Silicon Valley. I think you're absolutely right. And there was a venture capitalist on stage earlier today, J.D. Vance, who uh, is working now with Steve Case uh, on uh, a fund that's sort of looking to invest in Midwestern companies. And I think he's maybe based in Columbus, and he was saying the same point. It's just sort of like a diaspora of you know talent and knowledge and um, you know even you know mentorship to some level. But the thing about the Bay Area is it's not just you know I feel like it's it's a struggle for startups on a personal level because you know they're oftentimes having to live with like eight people and housing is expensive. But also I don't know how companies afford rent in the city. I mean, it used to be that you could sort of spend a couple of months, and it's probably still the case, with a venture capital firm that potentially gave you some seed funding. Oh, yeah. Um, the seed so rounds are bigger, out. but so's the rent. Yeah, well, and this was, this was one of the quotes from the Economist piece from Ajay at uh, Mithril Capital. You know, how are you supposed to have a startup in a garage if the garage itself costs millions of dollars? <laughs> right. And I thought yeah. that was a great quote. It's a great quote, but I mean, the, the rent is one problem. And think about what salaries cost now. If you're a company here in Silicon Valley, Series A, Series B, Series C, and you want to hire engineers, every single engineer you try to hire will have a competing offer from Uber and Facebook and Uber and Facebook can both pay double what you can. Okay, I have to, I have to, something you know, occurs to me with Gary sitting next to me who was a, was a long um, a partner at uh, YC. I do sometimes think that YC is a culprit here because it's sort of minted <laughs> founders in such you know, quick succession and for a long time it was making them come to Silicon Valley. So in a way it kind of, you know, it filled up the tub. Do, do you think there's any truth to that? Well, <laughs> I mean, to the extent that YC has minted uh, billion-dollar companies that now compete and uh, you know actually add a lot of sal you know quite a lot of salary for engineers and technical people, I think that you know that's probably a, a, a good situation. But yeah. I agree with you that uh, anything that does help tech, if uh, if the local region doesn't build more housing, if we can't make more space for tech, then the result will exactly be you know tech going everywhere else as well, and that's a net ne negative economically for the region, yes. but probably good for America. Right. Yeah, I mean, Austin wants people to come build their second office there. So does Dallas, so does Boulder, Chicago, Boston, Seattle, Portland. There's a bunch of great cities that have burgeoning but still relatively immature startup scenes that I think are going to really benefit from this unless everything falls apart. But I mean, so the only other happened. note that I would make is, you know, we would fund companies, uh, you know, that would go, that would leave Silicon Valley maybe eight, ten years ago, and then what would happen is they would actually just die because it does take a village. Yeah. It takes people who are continually help you figure out this is what I should be doing for my product, this is how fast I need to be going. Uh, you know, you actually have to have a community to do it and now that community does exist. Well, you know, another sort of um, interesting, uh, something interesting to think about is where the money that's um, coming into VC wants to be invested. So there's a lot of like sovereign wealth money that's coming in, a lot of money from China and elsewhere. And the question I think we'll probably see answered over the next you know 12 to 24 months is whether they want to be funding you know aside from Steve Case's company and aside from like Drive Capital is another I think well-regarded um, Midwestern venture fund. Of course, there are certain funds you know all over the country that um, have kind of earned the respect of limited partners. But I don't know that people you know 
from Saudi Arabia want to be investing in, you know, Nashville or Pittsburgh or, you know. And, and the well, they question. want returns. So yeah. if there are returns, they'll invest. Yeah, that's well, true. Well, and I think that's the big question, right? It's not just the inputs. It's also a question of exits. Sure. Right? Are the acquirers willing to buy companies in these geographies outside of Silicon Valley? So, for instance, um, earlier, uh, late last year, Intuit bought a, a company out of Boise, Idaho for several hundred million bucks, which had only raised, I think, 12 million in capital at the time, right? So when you look at the efficiency mm -hmm. in these markets, it's great. But Intuit is one of the few companies that actually invests and buys companies actually quite heavily. Two-thirds of their um, acquisitions in the last decade were outside of the valley. And, but that is not typical. Google, Facebook, Apple, um, almost all those companies are local. And so to me, the exits is a, a huge aspect of this pipeline um, for the rest you know, of these companies out. You know what's interesting? So yesterday I did a panel with Silicon Valley investors and we talked about this story and I kind of expected them to push back a little bit and defend Silicon Valley and talk about how maybe the architects of innovation are still in Silicon Valley and they're just sort of outsourcing more of the work. They didn't say that exactly. Um, but uh, to your point, Danny, they were saying that there, you know, even here, there aren't the exits that they, there right. used to be. You know, like Aileen Lee is a seed stage investor, and she was noting that it used to be, you know, you could invest in a team, and within a couple of years, if, you know, if there wasn't just sort of an aqua hire, you could sell that company for maybe like a 5X, and that was fine. Those yep. opportunities aren't happening now. I'm not exactly sure why. It's because Marissa Mayer is no longer a CEO of Yahoo. <laughs> That's about half of it. But I, I think the whole point about, you know, not being also Valley bad is because I think China's happening. And I think when yeah. you think about, you know, these these captains of innovation and, you know, the, the next kind of leaders of startup world, I think a lot about what's going on in the Chinese market. I mean, China is now one third of this show every week. And when we started a year and a half ago, it was zero percent. Yeah. And so I think that the gravity shift takes away some of the spotlight away from Silicon Valley while leaving a lot of the issues we just talked about. Still a great place to build, great place to live, great people, but it's just not quite as preeminent as it used to be. So that's why I would And I think that. it's also a question of, of t uh, opportunities. I, I hosted a, a panel this morning on investing in space, mm -hmm. space tech companies. And one of the points that Matt Ocko from uh, DCVC made was, um, you know, just today there was announced a Chinese company that had raised nine figures in venture capital that delivers fruit. And he's like, that's more Wait, money, fruit? just fruit. Just, oh, they just deliver everybody fruit. eats. Everybody and, eats. And there's 1.4 billion people that need to eat, right? And his point was, is like, if you look at the amount of investment we've done in space, you know, minus SpaceX, it's roughly nine figures. It's low nine figures. So it's the same amount of money as just like a fruit delivery startup in, in China. And so how do you compete for some of these more bold plays that I think Silicon Valley has been noted for? Well, if we could get SoftBank to not give WAG $225 million or whatever it was, instead <laughs> invest that into like, let's put people on space.com, I mean, maybe that would be the next hot thing. But they claim to be working on AI or whatever. Well, uh, I also, one of my um, reasons I'm so tired, I had a couple of conversations with very interesting people today on stage. One of them was Doug Leone of Sequoia Capital. And uh, we talked almost exclusively about the company's China strategy. It went there in 2005. It stayed. Others didn't. It's really reaping the results now. Uh, in fact, he said that 50% of the company's um, capital is going into China-based companies right now. And he didn't, I, I asked him, you know, what percentage of returns are coming out of there. He didn't really say, but he said it was, <laughs> a lot, a lot. Said it was on the rise. Yeah, I mean, they have, you know, like Sina is a fintech yeah. um, startup that they back. It's coming, coming public here. Neo, we talked about last yes. week or the week yes. before. Electric car company coming public here. They've got a lot in the pipeline. It's a lot in the pipeline, but here domestically, there are a couple of IPOs that are coming up, including, I believe, two this week. So if you are an S1 
Pokemon fanatic, and I know this is why I love Danny. Danny <laughs> likes to get dorky with the numbers with me. Um, there were two companies that are going to go public here. One is Elastic, and one Upwork filed, was that yesterday? Uh, yes. Yeah, Upwork Elastic. today, Elastic yesterday. I was trying to go home, and I couldn't because of this. So anyways, uh, Danny, will you walk us through the Elastic numbers quickly? Yeah, so, so really, really fast. Um, for Elastic, enterprise search company based in Mountain View, um, year-ending, uh, end of April, $160 million in revenue, up 80% year over year. Um, you know, if you look at their margin uh, revenue, 56.6 million bucks in the same time period, up from 31 uh, million a year ago. This, what, what the, the story here that's amazing though is if you think about this, this is a 160 million revenue company, six years old in that's the SaaS crazy. space. 2012 founding day, the Series A led by Peter Fenn and Benchmark also that year in 2012. And they've only raised just over, it was about 162 million uh, in private venture capital. Right, so you're looking at not just capital efficiency, but I think time efficiency in the return profile here. Did we talk about what Elastic does? They, I don't know, I don't know. I'm I so said an enterprise search. So they, okay. they host, they came from an uh, Amazon, uh, I'm sorry, uh, an Apache project called Lucerne. Okay. Uh, or Lucene, no, apologies. Um, which is a Great sort of, project. There you go. <laughs> it was sort of popularized. As, it was actually quite an old project, but they really popularized it, made it easier for developers to use, and also allowed it to scale much easier within the enterprise. And so, you know, years and years ago, you might have remembered that Google had like a search appliance, uh, you know, to do this sort of internal, you know, intro web kind of searching. And Elastic sort of came out and said, hey, you know, we can make that super easy. It's an API. Um, they compete a little bit with um, Algolia. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, databases are great for structured data, and Elastic is perfect for unstructured data. And so, you know, being able to have uh, automatic indexing on, you know, and being able to search very quickly is super valuable, actually. And, and are, are its customers like uh, Fortune 500 companies, or yeah. is it, yeah? All the above tech companies, the, yeah. the whole okay. shebang. Algolia is basically the easy mode version of yes. Elastic. <laughs> so I, I personally, I'm obviously yes. invested in Algolia, but I'm also a user. I've yes. used it many times. It basically feels like magic, honestly. Also, isn't Algolia doing really well, too? It I think they were in the news well. recently. What was that? I forget. Anyways, well, um, how, do, how do they distinguish it? If, uh, the, 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 how do you distinguish each from the other? And yeah. also, like, do they compete on pricing, or is it sort of? Yeah, Elastic is uh, kind of like you know Oracle in that um, you know it really is the the tech that it's on prem. You have to run it yourself. Yes. You actually have to do a lot to configure yeah. it to make it do what you want. And Algolia is kind of like the magic cloud-based thing where you just throw <laughs> data at it. Yes. And uh, the founders are really great computer scientists. Um, they actually figure out a way to make it so that it works out of box without actually having to configure anything. That's awesome. Uh, back to the growth point, though, about how impressive yeah. they've been since their, I think, 2012 founding. Um, in Very deep in their S1, there was a note about their net expansion rate. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of companies that are SaaS-based that go public love to really massage this number to make themselves look more attractive. But if I recall the S1 correctly, it was actually a very robust and, I think, kind of strict definition of net expansion, yes. which is how much do your pre earlier customers now spend on your platform. And uh, the numbers are fantastic. It was 142% as of July 31 of this year, and it was at least 130% for each of the last seven quarters. That means yes. when they land a customer, that person just spends more money with them over time, and that's how you can grow as much as yes. they have without losing all the money in the world. That's right. And so that means they're an impressive business twice over, and I think, you know, yes, it's enterprise, yes, it's from the Valley, yes, it's SaaS, whatever, but 
it's a great company to look at. I like to see healthy companies go public. They're not all Neos. <laughs> it's like two cars sold going public, you know? Um, and then that's in contrast in, in some ways to Upwork. So I mean, Up, Upwork is almost the exact opposite story in some ways. Um, you know, sort of the rebranded merger of two companies, Elance and Odesk. Odesk is an 03 company. Elance is a 1999 company. So you're looking at a 19-year sort of history from start to finish here. Um, and, and the numbers are, uh, is are actually quite decent. So um, they just hit 202 million in revenue, 23% growth year over year from 2016 to 2017. Um, in the last year, they had 276% uh, growth. So they certainly have, you know, kicked that up a notch. Um, and they had uh, four million in, in oh. gap net income. 27.6%. I didn't put oh, the... 27.6%. Yes. Now, <laughs> divide by 10. Okay. That's, that's a, that, we have paper notes because we're live. And so that is um, decimal point I lost there when I wrote that. Sorry. Thank God I didn't trade yet. It's not public yet. So we have some time to correct our... Um, this is our... not investment advice at all. <laughs> ever. Talk to a stock advisor. Um, and then more importantly, they had $4 million in gap net income in 2017. So an actual profitable... Silicon Valley started coming out onto the public markets, which you don't see often. What's interesting about these two, though, is they're, they're both benchmark companies. Benchmark was the lead, the, the largest investor in both in terms of uh, on the cap table at IPO, um, different stories with each. But you know, part of the uh, you know, motion with Bill Gurley has been you know, go public earlier, go public faster, don't be afraid of the public markets. And I think we're starting to see that action from Benchmark into the startups themselves. So for people who don't know, who is Bill Gurley and why is he so tall? Bill, Gur <laughs> Bill Gurley is a general partner at Benchmark, been there almost two decades. Um, he is tall because all Benchmark partners are tall. Is that part of the qualification? Minus, minus Sarah Tapp. <laughs> <laughs> um, but a couple of big wins Tom for him. spirit. Yeah, and back in 2015, when yes. I was actually still at TechCrunch, he was talking about, you know, be more, be more real, burn less money. All these big rounds are celebrating people just taking up their burn rates, be cautious. And then the market just kept going for three more years. So he's almost looked a little bit silly, even though he was talking rationally. And from the historical perspective, correctly, the yes. market has been more irrational than he, I think, anticipated at the time. That's right. But and we're still seeing mostly SaaS companies, right? I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, so Gurley also was sort of, you know, famously um, tangling with Uber. He was, Benchmark yeah. was one of the first investors in Uber. I think maybe led its Series B. A. Oh, Series, Series A. A. Okay, yeah. great. Um, and of course, that company is still on its way to going public maybe next year, maybe yep. the year after. Um, so it's kind of interesting. I'm just wondering if public market shareholders are just not ready for consumer startups or somebody's got to sort of, you know, Snap obviously had not the best... Uh, you know, I mean, I think I think it hit a low actually well, last week. The companies just choose not to go public simply because they can actually raise in, from the private markets. And so I think it was last week where the SEC actually came out and said, "Hey, we're kind of worried about this. We're kind of worried about all of this, uh, you know, frankly, enterprise value that's only available to private investors." Yeah. And this is again another, you know, Microsoft IPO'd at two hundred million dollars market cap, <laughs> and then all of that was available to any mom and pop investor. And yes. that absolutely is not happening today, especially because. Companies can just choose to yeah. stay private. Yeah, and actually, I talked to an, an SEC regulator yesterday, Gina Choi, who heads up the um, San Francisco office. It's interesting. They, they have much more sort of a territory than I realized. It's San Francisco, Silicon Valley, Portland, Idaho, Montana, Seattle. But she said there's you know so much going on here, it's hard to almost focus on anything else. But she was talking about Jay Clayton, the, her uh, boss at the SEC, saying exactly what you're saying, Gary, which is that they really want to let more mainstream 
Main Street, excuse me, investors uh, access private deals, which I, you know, I think the whole point is because so much is happening on the private market that people can't access. Of course, when you do that, there's sort of a higher risk of, you know, bad deals getting into the hands of sort of, you know, innocent investors, I guess. So that's what ICOs are for. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ICOs are kind of like, I'm not going to make that joke. I don't want to get the emails from the crypto kids. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. Anyways, we should uh, scoot along actually to okay. crypto. Yeah. That was an ironically beautiful segue, Gary. Thank you. Um, <laughs> in the last week, there has been turmoil in the crypto markets, I think it's fair to say. There's been a dramatic sell-off, and I believe people now push that towards the Goldman Sachs decision to not build out a Bitcoin and crypto trading desk, which had been a bullish indicator back in 2017. Well, okay. I know I keep talking about my interviews. I have had a lot of interviews at this event, and one of them was just an hour ago with a CFO of Goldman Goldman Sachs, Marty Chavez, who said that was fake news. Well, he now I'm just fake news. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did say 247%, so. <laughs> because you misread you're already, my news. Uh, yeah, you're already suspect. Um, no, it's interesting. He said that basically he, they were completely taken aback. They made this announcement back in May that they were going to sort of, you know, open up this Bitcoin trading desk. I, to be honest, you know, Banking stuff is sort of, you know, above my pay grade, but he was talking about how they've been sort of moving toward this um, moment where they're going to have sort of like physical custody of Bitcoin, but they never said that they were going to have it by a certain timeline. They're basically, in his words, doing exactly what they said they were going to do. He thinks what may have happened was a disgruntled customer uh, who maybe misunderstood uh, what Bitcoin was doing, talked to a reporter, starts this story that was, appeared in Business Insider, uh, and then was picked up by Reuters and numerous yeah. other outlets, and in fact had a huge impact on the price of Bitcoin oh, yeah. and other cryptocurrencies. It's and this is normal in crypto. It's just To me, it's just <laughs> another day. I opened up my you know, coin tracker app. I said, oh, you know, it's down 10% again. How do it's you, fine. How do you take that? If I opened up my 401k and it was down 10%, I would start drinking again. <laughs> like, that would be a bad, bad day. Basically, you don't get the 10%, you know, you, you don't get to enjoy the 10% up days without the 10% down days. <laughs> I think this is why I'm bad at poker. But I mean, the, the scale of sell-off was bigger than just 10%. Some of them were down 20%. Some coins were down 25%. Wow, I Bitcoin did better than most. But I mean, yes. like, like Ethereum, yeah. for example, got really beat up. It was sharp. Well, I think oh, that's, yeah. uh, that's a question I would love to ask you, Gary, is, is why has there been this divergence, I think, between Bitcoin and almost every other token? Right. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that you really have to notice is that um, you know, every dollar that goes into crypto, it actually results in about $25 to, 30, $25 to $50 in new market cap. And so if you look at the order books on uh, any of these exchanges, the, the swing can actually be, you know, the order books are tiny, right? Like a million dollars here or there for a hundred million dollar to a billion dollar uh, cryptocurrency can actually swing the price by like 25%. Yeah. So we're not talking about large amounts for yeah. the smaller, uh, lightly traded currencies. Yeah. And that's, I think, going back to why Goldman probably isn't that worried about market, market making yet. It's really that. Like, all of crypto today is still very, very early days, and it's incredibly sensitive to retail investors. So literally, your Uber driver giving you the hot Ripple stock tip. <laughs> By the way, don't buy it. Yeah, don't and buy Ripple. Don't buy Tron. Well, don't buy Ripple. Cardano is for losers. Exactly. Well, I, think what's interesting. Well, I don't know. Cardano I don't know. I, I, was a joke. I don't know. Don't, don't email. No, don't I don't dive know. I was in kidding. that. I was kidding. <laughs> you know, I think one of the major stories here really is 
you know, Goldman is some of the inventors of some of the financial products of the last 20, 30 years. And, you know, part of the bulge bracket, inventing, you know, mortgage-backed securities, all these different, you know, mechanisms. And now, I think because of the regulations in some ways, like, they just don't want to touch this. I mean, they are a systematic bank institution. They're regulated by the Fed, a bunch of other agencies. It's hard. I mean, it just, they can't just open a trading desk. They have to get a regulator approval, and that just doesn't exist today. Whereas, for you and me, ironically, as retail investors, we actually have access to this financial innovation in a way that, um, you know, mortgage-backed securities, you just couldn't buy a Great CDO, point. you know, off the street, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, the reality of it is uh, you should watch out for the people who lose money because they're the ones who get to sue. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And right now, it's not looking great. And so if I had sold a lot of certain cryptocurrencies, I might be worried about that. Well, when someone serves a subpoena to Satoshi, I'll be looking forward to it. <laughs> All right. Well, before we go, I wanted to touch on a topic we've been hitting on occasionally on the show, which is kind of the prevalence and growth of what we call super rounds, super giant rounds, these kind of $100 million plus rounds. And I grabbed one that I found pretty interesting. So recently, a company called Caffeine uh, raised $100 million. And it was interesting because they had raised $46 million earlier this year. So this was their second round of capital, quite a large check, in a very short period of time to go up against Twitch, effectively, um, which is owned by Amazon, which, as we discussed at the top of the show, kind of a big deal. And so I, I pulled a couple of numbers for us. There were uh, $4,700 million plus venture deals in June, 56 in July, and then down to 43 in August. So two things. One, super interesting that caffeine raised this much, but also a slight market pullback in these mega rounds. So I'm kind of curious what we think about the state of enormous fundraising. Well, first, I mean, let's just think about those numbers. It's just astonishing. So that was just in the summer, and I think maybe in the first six months, uh, Aaron Griffith of the New York Times had reported something like 250, 100 million dollar rounds. It's just astonishing. As far as like the dip in August, I don't really know if that's so surprising. I mean, honestly, like I didn't take a vacation in August, and I couldn't believe how, you know, it, it seemed that nobody was taking a vacation in August. I mean, it didn't. You didn't really feel much of a downtick in like activity, but that's not completely shocking. Or, or do you guys disagree? Yeah, but I mean, it, the trend has been going up very steadily. So to see any sort of decline, especially a decline of 13 in a month, felt, as Danny pointed out, it's not a trend yet, but it was noticeable enough that I, I wanted to flag it in case September is slower, then we might have a trend. Um, but you're right, August is the traditional venture capital go to, you know, south of France month. Right, right, right. right. So, well, and I think it's interesting, I mean, the, the speed at which these rounds are happening, right? Mm -hmm. So I interviewed Daniel Schreiber from Lemonade on stand, and he, he had raised $120 million from SoftBank six months after raising $60 million from the last set of investors. I mean, I think what you're seeing is there's more and more of these bet-the-house sort of startups, right? So Caffeine is going up against a multi-billion dollar company. Um, Lemonade is going into the property and casualty um, insurance space. So it, it, it's super intense, super competitive, and the only way you can succeed is to raise that level of capital super early in the business. So I think we're going to see more and more of these, um, hopefully not all in the fruit delivery space to uh, <laughs> people in Beijing. but. Um, you, you know, know you just, what's going to happen all the way. You've jinxed it. That's going to become the next biggest company in the world, and we're all going to have to eat our words a year from now <laughs> when they're actually absolutely crushing it. It's going to happen. I mean, to me, it just means that uh, the stakes have never been higher for tech in the broader economy. You know, the $100 million round for caffeine, to me, is really a war between media and tech. And both of them do, you know, media is used to having these massive, ridiculously large rounds. I mean, that's how you sort of mint these new treasures that people pay attention to. And so, absolutely, that's the story. It's Caffeine wants to, wants to beat Amazon and Twitch at their own game, and it's going to take some money to do it. 
Yeah, and the context there is the $100 million round was actually led by 21st Century Fox. Now, Andreessen and Greylock, who led their preceding round, took part in it, but it certainly was kind of a non-traditional, from a venture perspective, capital pool that put the money in. Mm -hmm. um, and I would love to watch tech versus media all day, because I love that fight. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, if you're the S&P now, it's the same. They just reassigned, what, Google and Facebook into a new communications category for the S&P 500 index. So they are actually in the 21st century Fox uh, category now. So they've redefined them as media companies just in the last two months. Yeah, and there's a brass ring here, really, because if you think about eSports, it is actually sort of the future of sports at the end of the day. If you look at the average age of people who are into basketball, into football, into tennis, into golf, it's going up and up and up. And that's because children today, you know, our kids are going to go and download these apps, and they're not really going to care as much about some of these sports. I mean, not all, some of them will survive, but not all of them will. Yeah. That is a depressing future to me. <laughs> it's going to be awesome because Team Liquid is playing in the North American LCS this Saturday, and I'm stoked to watch it. <laughs> so go eSports. Anyways, we should go. Okay. Great seeing everybody. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Gary. Thank, Thank you, Connie. Alex. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everybody who gathered and listened to us blather on here. <laughs> All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to Connie Loizos, our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week.